Grab a seat, church. Well, we have two more weeks in Hebrews, this week and next week, and then we're going to just plunge immediately into the book of Daniel, which is going to be really exciting. So read ahead. Um, all humans, and I really thought about this, so listen, all humans live their values. All humans live their values. We say it another way, we are worship-driven creatures. What we do is a direct reflection of what we value. Everything that you do, every decision that you make, every impulse that you have and that you uh, bow your knee to, every thing that you do, that you spend your time, your money, your life on is a reflection of what you love. All right? So we, we live our values, what you value. We're value-driven people. We do what we want. It's one thing, man. One thing I've learned about people. I think my mom. I think I'm quoting my mom right now, actually. We, people do what they want to do. Why is that person doing that? Why, why would they do that? Well, that's what they want. They do what they want. And we actually live in an economy that really makes it easy uh, for people to do what they want. It's just kind of a thing. We do what we want, and what we want informs what we do, and what we do reveals what we want. It's not that we always want the wrong thing. It's that we usually want the wrong thing more than we want the right thing. What sin is, is sin is a choice, listen, sin is a choice to believe that the perversion of reality is greater than the author's version of reality. Sin is when we go, I'm going to choose that perverting what God has made is actually going to make me happier than honoring what God has made. We step outside of God's reality, outside of God's creation. Sin, sin is a failure to treasure God as supreme. That's what sin is. Sin is a choice to value something that God hates or something that is actually antithetical to God more than God himself. It's a choice to, to love something rather than someone, God himself. You know, the parent, let's say in his example, the parent who... who ruins or obliterates his family and, and loses his children and loses his spouse because of an addiction or because of a, of, a, of a hobby or because of an obsession with his career. It's not that he doesn't love his family. It's just that he loves himself more. It's not that he doesn't love his wife. It's that he loves his pleasure more. Augustine, I think it was Augustine that, that called it the disordering of our loves, our loves need to be reordered. Our loves are out of order. That's, that's what happened at the fall, right? That happened at the fall. The, 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 the love, what we love as humans is, is opposite. It's backwards. We love creation more than we love creator. And so what needs to happen is our loves need to be rearranged. And if you want to know what you really love, you need to look at your micro decisions. What do I mean by micro decisions? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, but there's, there's macro decisions. Those are the big decisions that you make. And you're usually pretty measured and careful in how you make those because they're very public, right? People see your macro decisions. But your micro decisions, those are the ones that your family sees. Those are the ones that your kids see. Those are the ones that your spouse sees. Those are the ones that your community sees. Those are the ones that don't seem very costly. The decision of how to spend your money 
when it's only a small amount, the decision of what to do with your time when no one's really watching, the decision of what to do with your, with your resources when it doesn't really matter, no one's really paying attention. Those are your micro decisions. And if you want to know what you really care about in life, you just got to step back and examine your micro decisions, and you'll find out what you really love. You'll find out what you really care about. So let me bring this to, to kind of a point here. The gospel, this is so important, the gospel is not a message about how to change what you're doing, primarily. A lot of people think that the gospel is just this message about how to change your life, how to change what you're doing, how to change your ethics, how to change your actions. It's not a message about how to change what you're doing. Actually, it is a message about what God is doing to change your valuing. It's about what God is doing and has done to change what you love, to reorder your affections, to reorder your loves in such a way that your, 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 your actions can actually change. And the problem is we don't like our actions a lot of times, right? Because they're, they're costly, they're harmful, they're evil. We know our actions are wrong, and so we want to change them. But the problem is we try to change them by changing our actions. What we really need to change is what we love because we do what we love. We live our values. You're following me? We live our values. And so here's, here's the good news. God's smarter than we are. If we were to write the gospel for ourselves, we would write a book of rules. We would write a book of to-dos, the things that would improve our life. We would write self-help books just like everybody does. But God didn't do that because he got smart. He knew, he knew that to fix man, he had to fix more than just man's doing. He had to fix man's loving. He had to come in and actually change what we want he had to come in at the deepest level and actually rearrange the value system of our heart. And that's called being what? Born again. The gospel is that Jesus came in to not only pay for our sin debt, but to give us the ability by the Spirit to be born again with new affections, with new longings. Your doing will never change until your valuing goes through a change. And when you get born again, your, your whole value system changes. Um, when I was an unsaved teenager, I was very familiar with the Bible, I was in a Christian home, and verses like this terrified me. Let, me. let me tell you which ones. John 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do as I command you. Oh, that's, that was terrifying for me. Why was it terrifying for me? Because I, I couldn't seem to do what Jesus was commanding me. It was terrifying for me. Here's another one. First uh, John chapter 2. I remember First John was the scariest book in the Bible when I was a non-Christian. God is light and in him is no darkness. Listen, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, I read that and I was like, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. Why? Because, see, before I was born again, I really loved sin. And I was terrified of hell. I would sit, like a lot of you kiddos in here, I would sit and listen to some old preacher um, talk about hell, and I, I was terrified. I would lay in bed terrified. Well, I don't want to go to hell. But here was the problem. I didn't know how to not love sin. I didn't know how to not love the things that I wanted in the world, and I knew the things that I wanted were contrary to God's law, and I just couldn't figure it out, so I was, I was terrified. Now, what happened? What changed? Okay, what changed is this. God showed me that he was a superior value to sin. 
He awoke my affections, rearranged my loves. He he appeared to me in such a way where the thing that I couldn't imagine giving up before all of a sudden became worthless. It's It's like I thought I knew the deepest thing I wanted and then God created a whole new floor that was deeper in the affections of my heart. He opened up and excavated a whole new basement. The deepest part of my affections, the deepest part of my longings came awake. What did I find? What did I find that that made me all of a sudden not care as much about sin? What did I find that all of a sudden released my death grip on the things that I never thought I could get rid of? What did I find? I found Christ. And I found that he was so valuable. I found that he was like a treasure that was so valuable that nothing else mattered. It it completely changed what, what I cared about. All of a sudden, God restarted the engine of what drove me. Now, here's the crazy thing. My life started to change. My morals started to change. Everything started to change. I thought about relationships. I started wanting to be around the body. I started wanting to read my Bible. All these things that I just formerly couldn't figure out how to make myself do. I just couldn't figure it out. All of a sudden, I wanted to do them. I wasn't forced to do them. I wanted to do them. Why? Because we live our values. See, my values in an instant by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, changed because I found a treasure. And that treasure became so valuable to me, so dear to me, that I didn't want to read my Bible so that I could feel good about myself. I wanted to read my Bible because within the book comes Christ. He lives within the contents of the book. I wanted to go to church because in the church, there lives Christ. His spirit lives among the body and each member. I wanted to worship God because he's so worthy. Man, I just changed everything about my life and my doing and my living. But here's the problem, okay? Here's what religion is. Religion is when we come at that backwards. Religion is when we say, let's start with what it looks like to be a Christian. But if you start with what it looks like to be a Christian without rearranging the affections of the heart, you get legalism, hiding sin, religious environments, abusive environments. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because Hebrews chapter 13 is like the plane coming out of the high oxygen, high levels of theology and Christology. If you guys notice, Hebrews 1 through 12, man, we've just been soaring high, high Christology. Jesus, high and lifted up, the high priest, the temple, the eternal dwelling of God, the city of God, all of these huge theological principles. In chapter 13, the plane is starting to land on the tarmac, and the tarmac looks like everyday life stuff, okay? Hospitality, generosity, sexuality, contentment, all these practical things that we're going to dive into this morning. But here's what I want you to notice. Chapter 13, this is going to sound really obvious. Chapter 13 is not chapter 1. Where did the author put chapter 13? At the end of the book. It's the last chapter in the book. Why did he do that? Why did he spend 12 chapters unpacking the person and the beauty and the glory and the superiority of Jesus Christ before he even got into any practice about what it looks like to live like a Christian? Because we live our values. Because if, if we don't get Jesus right in our thinking and in our worshiping and in our viewing, we'll never get our life right in our doing and our acting and our ethics. Okay, you could, put it, you could put it this way. Our doxology, that is our worship, and our theology, that is our understanding of God, is upstream from our morality. Put it another way, our orthodoxy, that's right thinking, our orthodoxy informs our orthoproxy, that's right practice. 
We have to think right about Jesus before we're going to act right for Jesus. We got to get the order right. And that's why we've spent so much time focusing on who the person of Christ is. Now, we're going to look closely, quickly, for you parents, quickly. We're going to look quickly at one through six. But I need you to see the context. I need you to back up and look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, because it's the key to understanding this list of attributes that we're going to look at here in a moment. Here's what the author says in verse 28, chapter 12. Therefore, let us, that is Christians, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Now, pause right there. When you were born again, when you were saved, you transferred your allegiance, you became an expatriate of this world, and you transferred your citizenship out of this world system into an entirely new system. It's called the kingdom of God. And as such, you forfeited your rights in this world, you forfeited your value and your currency in this world, and you took up an entirely new currency, an entirely new identity, and you, and you now belong in a new system. It's called the kingdom of God. That's Christian life. Okay, and we grow up into that system. Now we live into this new system, not this old system. That's called the kingdom of God. And he wants us to see that. Now, just, just pause there. We were up in the mountains last weekend, and uh, we were up on the Pacific Crest Trail. You guys know there's a trail that runs from Mexico to Canada. It's called the Pacific Crest Trail. And people come from all around the world to hike on this trail. And I noticed something as we were sort of on this one mountain pass and we're watching all of these Pacific, trail, Pacific Crest Trail PCT, PCT hikers go past us. I said, these guys all look the same. They all look, there's like a look, like a PCT look. And it's not just because they really need a bath. And that's true too. And they can't help it, right? They need a bath. But there, there's a look, right, about them. What, what's the look? Well, there's these certain characteristics of these guys. They have a look about. First of all, their backpacks are really tiny, not like our, our guys. Our guys, were, our backpacks were huge, right? Because we were there to party, man. We were there to have fun. And we brought chairs and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, like Brad Ralph brought a saw that was six feet long. And he like literally made a stool out of a log. It was crazy, you know. So, but not the PCT hikers, right? They, they wear these, these tiny little backpacks and tiny little shorts, you know. And, and, uh, and they have, uh, and, 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 they, and they wear like sun protection, you know. And, and they just have a look about them. Now, how do I know that, they're, that it's a PCT hiker? Because they live their values. See, there's a culture there. What are their values when you're a PCT hiker? Hike 25 miles a day, don't get sunburned, don't eat, get eaten by a bear, and pack light. That's their values, right? That's, so they, their culture reflects what they value. They value getting lots, smashing lots of miles every week so they can get this thing done in less than four months, get all the way up to Canada, not get eaten by a bear, not get sunburned. So their values inform their... Now, my point is simply this. Cultures have a look to them, don't they? And the way a culture looks tells you a lot about what they value. So as Christians, what should our look be? We should be pretty easy to spot. And it's not because we got some cheesy thing on our, the back of our car or some fridge magnet uh, or, or because, you know, wh whatever that is. It, it should be something about us that is unique and distinct and stands out. There should be a culture of Christ's community. I think it's Scott McKnight calls it Christoformity. Christoformity, meaning we take on the shape of Christ as a community, and as individuals. We look like Jesus. We share these attributes like, that a community, that people look at us and are like, wow, you guys look like Christ. What the author's gonna do this morning is he's gonna unpack for us characteristics of a Christoformity culture, a culture that looks like Jesus. 
That's what we're going to see. And these, these ethics, these values, they, they flow out of, as we'll see, our worship. So again, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable, what? Worship. Worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So everything we're going to look at here in verses 1 through 6 is clarity on what it looks like to be worshipers. And what is worship? Worship is what we value. Okay? Worship is when Christ is the center of our valuing. So let me put it very simply. Verse 1 through 6 is what it looks like to live our values when Christ is our ultimate value. Are you with me? Okay, and we're going to see some of the nuances of what Christian culture looks like. So if you're taking notes, I'll just give you five quick things and then we'll end. Five quick characteristics of kingdom culture. Number one is familial charity, if you want to write it down. Familial charity. Look at the first verse of verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Anybody know what the Greek word for brotherly love is? Philadelphia, Philadelphia, okay, uh, Philadelphia, it's, it's, it's brotherly love, it's the city of brotherly love, it's, it's, it's this, this amazing reality that Jesus bought with his own blood, and I need you to see that, that, that he's saying, hey, value, prize this, this beautiful thing called brotherly love. Now, don't get so hung up on the brother piece, it's not about brothers, it's about family, Brothers and sisters, you guys remember that moment where Jesus, it's a classic moment where Jesus first appears to Mary, she doesn't recognize him, she thinks he's the gardener, and he reveals himself to her, and she clings to him, and he says, don't cling to me, he says, go, here's what he says, he says, go and tell, listen, he says, go and tell, not my disciples, not my followers, not my friends, what does he say, go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father, and to your Father, to my God, and to your God. One of the most astounding realities that Jesus purchased with the cross was the family of God. It was one of the first things that he unpacked when, when he revealed himself to Mary. He said, look, I am now brothers with you. I'm bro- it was the first time there that he refers to them as brothers. Our Father. Jesus purchased, we actually sung that song, Our Father, right? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. We are now part of the family of God. And what the author here is, is saying to the Hebrew audience is he's saying, let this familial love continue. Let it continue. Now, I need you to note this. This is not a call to create this community. It's a call to curate this community, What do I mean by that? I mean that it's a call to continue it. Do you see that? He says, let it continue. And now that that might seem like a trifle point, but it's really important. We actually don't create gospel community. It's created by the Spirit. It is a reality. If you've been saved, you are born into a family. I I remember hearing about this disease um, years ago, and I, I Googled it, and it turns out it's a real thing. It's called body integrity disorder. Have you guys heard of this? It's the craziest thing. It's really rare. And it's where you actually have a limb that is perfectly healthy and perfectly normal, but your brain will not accept it. And you have an urge to amputate it. Okay, I think this is a a, a disease that actually is within the church. There are a lot of Christians who have been born into a family and they don't want the family, even though it's theirs. 
There's a lot of Christians that struggle with the idea of the church. They're like, I don't know, man. I, you know, I can go meet Jesus in the woods. I don't really need to go to church. It's not really important, okay? But the reality is you are born into a family. And whether you accept that reality or not, you need to see that it's there and that it's yours and that it's valuable. The love of the body is the greatest witness of the church. Did you know that? The way you love, remember what Jesus said? He said, um, they will know you by the way you love each other. And he's talking about Christians, the community, the body of Christ. One of the things that made the gospel so catalytic and just so explosive in the first century wasn't just the message of the good news. It was the way that it coupled with the way Christians were caring for each other within the community of Christ. It was astounding. When Christians start preaching the gospel and they start living the gospel by radically caring for their community and actually acting like a family, it's crazy. Churches grow. Life happens. People get saved. The gospel moves. So the first call here for this community, the characteristics of this community, is to let this familial love continue. It's so important. They will know you're Christians by your love. So receive your body. Protect your body. Use your body. Participate in your body. Fight for your body. Guys, the church is the most underutilized resource of Christianity. And I'm not talking about a brand. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a strategy. I'm not talking about a stage or an influence or a building. I'm talking about the body of Christ. It is so valuable, Christian. Do you see it? Do you value it? Do you press into it? Do you lean into it? Our goal here is not to just get you to come on Sunday and sit and listen to a sermon. Our goal here is to get you doing what we call body life. Letting the reality of the unity of Christ's body happen in your life. And it's sourced. It's sourced within the Trinity itself. The second thing, not only familial charity, but if you want to write it down, second thing is intentional hospitality. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, don't get too distracted with the angels thing. It's, he's not saying you should be hospitable because... You might end up with an angel in your house. He's just saying, you never know, right? So treat everyone with value. There's a call here for Christians to be hospitable. Uh, And it's something we need to not neglect, meaning it's something we need to be intentional about. Now, a little bit of historical context. If you read a commentary or anything on this passage, you'll immediately learn that hospitality was a really big deal in the first century. It was a big deal because you couldn't just check into, there wasn't just motels on every corner, um, and motels weren't, weren't typically safe. So if you were to stay at an inn, a lot of inns were actually more like brothels. They were very unsafe. They were seedy establishments. Um, there was a lot of, it was, it was a really dangerous thing to travel in the first century. So hospitality was really important. It was a really a valuable asset to have. If you knew somebody in a town you were traveling through, man, you, you really had it made there. So he's reminding these Christians to be hospitable to who? Their friends, their family? To strangers. Strangers. Oh, interesting. So this isn't, just, this isn't just talking about the church. It's actually also just talking about people we actually don't really know that well. So we, we actually have a call as Christians not only to be hospitable to one another for sure, but to be hospitable to people we don't know. To be generous with People that we don't know. It's a primary characteristic. It's actually one of the leadership requirements of an elder in the New Testament is that they be hospitable. 
It's one of the things that Jesus immediately called Matthew and Zacchaeus to. It was something that Jesus expected the the community of faith to do when he sent out his 72. He said, people are going to let you stay in their house. Or they should. Otherwise, shake the dust off your feet. Why is hospitality so important to God? Why is hospitality so important to God? The answer is this. Listen, God is the God of the outsider. Read the Bible. Read it through that lens. Read the whole Old Testament. You'll see, you'll find that God is the God of the outsider. God is about inviting the stranger into his house. And that's you and I. That's you and I. We are not Jews. At least, I'm not. We're Gentiles. We are the outsider. We are the stranger. Christ came into this world and he showed hospitality. He came into this world so that he could bring us back to his world. He said, I'm going to make a house for you. He has invited us with hospitality into his space. And so Christians, who again are a Christ-centered culture, a Christiform culture, a culture that's supposed to reflect the attributes of Jesus, our Lord, we, like him, are to be hospitable. How? The same way he was. Jesus was incarnational. He went into where people were, and he invited them into where he was. That's what Jesus did. Now, I want to actually encourage you guys in this. You guys are so hospitable. And by hospitable, I don't just mean letting people into your home. Be careful about that. Sometimes that's, that's a good thing. Sometimes it's, you know. But I, I think even more so in our cultural context, it's letting people into your life. One thing I hear all the time about you guys, and I'm so proud of you guys for this, is man, Philippi opens their arms wide to new people. Just sticky. They're just a sticky jerk. People, people just open wide. Like, and you guys do. You guys just do so well. Thank you. That's an attribute of Christ. That is an attribute that reflects the community that should look like Jesus. It is an open community that is open to strangers. New people come in here, and, you're, and they're welcome. So keep that up. Be encouraged, Philippi. Christians are hospitable. So thirdly, not only familial charity, not only intentional hospitality, but also actionable empathy. If you want to write that down, actionable empathy. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, remember, the Hebrews are being persecuted here around 50-something AD, and so they've had some of their property taken away. Some of them have literally been in prison, not because they were criminals, but because they were being persecuted for their faith. And so here, the author of Hebrews is reminding these Christians, don't forget about those within your ranks that have been imprisoned. Care for them. Now, a little bit of cultural context here that helps you understand this. Prison was pretty different in the first century than it is in our world. Okay, prison today is like a holding place and we give people food and we give them lodging and we give them everything we need. That, that was very different in the first century. Prison was a temporary place for them to figure out what they were gonna do with you long-term and they wouldn't give you food. So you were completely dependent on the generosity of your family system or your friends to make sure you didn't die if you were in prison. Guys, that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, thank you for standing by me when I was in jail. He said, you were the only ones that stood by me. That means they were bringing him food and sending him money so that he could be sustained while he was in jail. Okay? Now, what he's saying here is he's saying, don't forget about the people. Don't forget about the people that are out of sight, out of mind. He's saying there's some of you that have been arrested and mistreated. Take care of them. Watch out for them. Remember implies that it would be easy to forget them. 
And I really think it's, it's the ministries that no one sees, and it's the ministries that no one asks you to do, and it's the ministries that no one praises you for that most honor Christ. I mean, it's so easy to just see who's right in front of me, who's right in front of me, who's not right in front of you, who didn't come to church today, who couldn't make it up the stairs. Man, we, we have this unfortunate disadvantage of this church that we don't have an elevator. There are people that, that don't come sometimes because they can't get up the stairs, there's a lot of different types of prisons in this world, right? Some of our elderly, they're, they're in prison in their home. They're maybe in prison because of this smoke. Let's notice them. Let's care for them. Let's be the family of God. Let's notice when someone's not there. How do we do this? A few things. First of all, remember them, which means you need to be, uh, you need to be tuned in. You know, out of sight, out of mind. It's, it's, it's really easy to just be absent, but, but there's an intentionality here. How do we do this? Another is through empathy. You notice he says that, um, you notice he says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. What that means is, is enter into their discomfort, enter into their pain, feel what they're feeling. That's empathy. That's, that's choosing to feel the sorrow of someone else. It's, a, that's a, it's an incredible thing. And where did we learn that? Where did we get that? We get it from Jesus. Jesus chose to come into this world and take on human flesh, to be the man of sorrows, to take on the grievances of humanity that were not his. Why? So that he could, emphasize, so that he could empathize and have solidarity with us as our great high priest. We're to do the same. Jesus came out of heaven, out of freedom, into a world full of captivity and slavery and death brokenness and evil and chose to put all of that on his own shoulders to live 33 years in tears because he was choosing to enter into prison with us so he could set us free. So Christians, how do we live? We live like Christ. We enter into people's cages with them. And we meet them where we are, where we meet them where they are. I would encourage you this week, this is really practical stuff. Again, we're, we're landing on the tarmac here, okay? I would encourage you this week to think about, in the body of Christ, who is imprisoned? Who's imprisoned in addiction? Who's imprisoned in mental illness? Who's imprisoned physically? Who's imprisoned in anxiety? Who's imprisoned in depression? Can you be incarnational like Christ? Can you meet them in their space? Can you care for them? If you do that, you're doing body life. That's what the call here is. It's to be actionably meeting the imprisoned in the space that they're in. And the gospel is our example for this. Number four, so not only familial charity, not only intentional hospitality, actionable empathy, but fourthly, honorable sexuality. Honorable sexuality. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here the author decides to bring up the institution and the reality of marriage. Okay, and, and he's referring not only to the idea of marriage, which by the way, God made it. God made it up. He gets to decide what it is and what it isn't. It's not up for debate. Okay, marriage is created and it was created with intentionality. He's also referring to the marriages that existed at the time of this letter being written. And what does he say about marriage? He says, honor it. It's so important. It's so valuable. It deserves our honor. It deserves our respect. Is what he's saying? 
It's interesting that he, that he says uniquely that there is a judgment specifically connected to sexual immorality. Okay, now that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're struggling with sexual immorality as a Christian that God is going to condemn you or damn you. What that means, though, is that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And God does not allow sexual immorality to go unchecked. He will work purity in his church. Okay, I know we've got kids in here, so I'm trying to be careful in how I say this. The industry of pornography is directly connected to the sex industry. It's, connect, it's directly connected to people being taken advantage of. And God is purifying and working in his church. Okay, so he, he lists not only, um, not only does he list uh, sexual immorality, which is porneia, he also um, lists adultery, which is moikos, which is anything outside of the, the marriage bed. He says, honor this, live holy. Why do we live holy? Because God is holy. Okay, we are a set-apart community. We are set apart for his purposes. Listen, sexual sin and perversion is one of the chief characteristics of Satan's economy. Isn't it? It just is. It's one of the chief characteristics of Satan's economy. And Satan in his world system loves to take what is perverted and make it normative and even celebrated. Have you noticed? So what, is one of the, what should be one of the primary defining characteristics of Christ's community? Sanctity in marriage. Holiness sexually. This is important. It's very important. Number five. We'll end here. The fifth Characteristic is material liberty. Material liberty. Look at verse five. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. You notice he doesn't say keep your life free from money. What does he say? Keep your money, keep your, keep your money, keep your life free from the love of money. It's the same thing Jesus said. Jesus didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, pull, pull the files back up for my introduction. What did we learn in my introduction? We live our values. We live our values. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying don't let the value of money control you. Don't let it rule you. Don't let it own you. See, God loves to give us things. God just doesn't want things to own us. He's okay with us owning things. He doesn't want things to own us. God's okay with us having money. He doesn't want money to have us. And I know some of you guys would do what I do, and you go, oh, money, I don't really care about money. Whatever, money, I'm not a money person. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. See, money represents material possessions. It represents security, safety, image, comfort, pleasures, experiences, hobbies. I'm not a money person, but I do really like getting Dutch Bros every morning, and I do really like leasing a new car, and I do really like getting to go on a vacation once a year, and I do really like living in a safe neighborhood where I don't have to worry about getting broken into, and I do really like having an alarm system, and I do really like having Ben and Jerry's in my freezer. Okay, you like money, right? Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's evil to want those things. I'm not saying it's evil to have those things. I'm not saying it's evil to love those things. Just love Jesus more. It's the ordering of your loves that needs to happen. It's the ordering of your loves that needs to happen. You will never be free from the, listen, this is so important. You will never be free from the love of creation until you experience the love of creator. Everything comes back to idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is taking creation 
and putting it in the place of creator. What is that? It's a misordered love. It's making too much of something rather than someone. It's, make, it's taking what God made and making it God. It's worshiping what God makes instead of the, the person of God himself. That's slavery. What you worship, you serve because we're value-driven creatures. What you love is what you serve. So what's the key to freedom? Love God. Serve God. Value God. And you'll be free. Freedom is realizing you already have everything you could ever want in Christ. So everything you thought you wanted is of no importance anymore. And everything that you feared losing before is no longer, ha- and no longer has any weight over you. The Christian is the definition of a free person. You have all that you need in Christ. He has eternal riches for you. That's why Paul could say while he was sitting in jail, he's like, take my life. I don't care. I have everything I need in Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He's like, it doesn't matter. I can have a lot. I can have none. It doesn't matter. Christ is my treasure. He's hidden in the field. I found him about the whole field. He's my treasure. Take my life. I don't. I just spilled water all over myself. Why not? Why not? Just baptize me. Okay, whatever. Take my Bible. Whatever. I don't care. Take my pants. No, don't take my pants. Oh, my goodness. Jim Elliott, he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot possibly keep for what he cannot possibly lose. I think I'm getting that right. Okay, Sam, so how? Because maybe if you're just being honest right now, that'd be a weird thing, right, at church, being honest. Like, if you're really being honest right now, you're saying, Sam, that sounds really great, but here's the problem. The, pro- the problem is I really love money, and the problem is I don't feel hospitable, and I don't like strangers, and I don't care about people in prison, and the reality is, is you're saying we're supposed to do all these things as Christians and you're saying that these things are the result of being a Christian, but I don't feel that and I don't want to do those things. So, so how exactly am I supposed to do those things? Well, the text ends this way. Look at it. The text ends this way. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Listen, listen. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my what? My helper. Guys, are you, are you, do you have to do this alone, this whole Christian life thing? No. It's hard. Do you, do you have to do this whole like living out the characteristics of Christ and being generous and, and staying you know, sexually chaste and, and all that? Do you have to do this alone? No. He says, I'm with you in it. I'm going to help you through it. I'm the helper, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Jesus invested in you the resources to live the Christian life. You have it. It's in you. This is really good news. So you can't really say, well, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Okay. The answer of how to do that is that you got to let him do it through you. You got to let him do it through you. Let me say it this way. It is not just you working through how to live a life like Christ. It is you working to let Christ's life live through you. Let me say that again. It's not just you working through how to live a life like Christ. That's religion. It is you working to let Christ's life live through you. Where are you getting that, Sam? John chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, 
What does he mean by that? I am the source of it. I'm the life. I got, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the root system, okay? And you are the what? The branch. If you abide in me, you will produce fruit. Who's producing fruit? Is it the branch or is it the vine? See, the problem is, you guys have heard me say this before. The problem is we are branches trying to pretend like we're vines. Nothing will burn you out on religion more than that because it's religion. Your job is not to be the vine. Your job is to be the branch. Your job is to abide. What, Sam, what does abide mean? It means remain. It means connect. It means plug into. It means hold on to. It means have faith in. It means be filled with. Abide in Christ. He is the source of life. You're just the tube that takes the, li- takes the life and produces fruit with him being the one that actually creates it. That's your job. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. What does he mean? He means me, formerly, who I was, Paul, formerly Saul, I have been crucified with Christ. My old man is dead. My old life is gone. It's nailed to the cross. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying, that it's Christ's life living through me. Now, this is so important. I can't even set my Bible down because there's so much water. There's, this is so important because if the focus becomes, okay, Jesus said to not do these things and Jesus said to do these things, I need to try really hard to do. If the focus becomes trying to order your doing instead of ordering your valuing, you're gonna fail and you're gonna get discouraged. You have one job, Christian. You have one job, and it's the same thing Hebrews has been telling us to do the entire way for the last year, and that is get yourself to Christ. Plug into him and let his life through the Spirit produce fruit through you. Sam, that's so ethereal. What do you mean by that? I hear it all the time. Like, just give me practical. What does that actually look like? Okay, let me make it as practical as I can. Put it this way. What we, what we do will change when what we value changes. Are you with me? Okay, we, we've, I've been talking about this for 40 minutes. What we do changes when what we value changes, right? What we do changes when what we value changes, right? I still don't think you guys are good. What we do changes when what we value changes, right? Okay, that was good, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna start the whole sermon again. What we value changes when what we see changes. And what we see changes when what we look at change, changes. Okay? What that means is that if you want to change what you're doing, you need to change what you love. And if you want to change what you love, you need to change what you're looking at. Sam, you're saying if I just look at Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start living differently? Yeah. If you've been born again. Because if you've been born again, God came in and gave you entirely new desires. The deepest desires of your heart are longing to serve and be faithful to Christ. And the only reason you're not worshiping him is because you're not looking at him. He's the ultimate value in the universe. He's the ultimate joy. He's the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate glory. He's the source of everything in all the universe. If you're not worshiping him, it's because you're not looking at him. So what is our primary job as Christians? Look at Jesus. He's with you. He's in you, and he wants to produce this kind of culture through you. So stop working so hard to change your behavior and start working hard to change what Dallas Willard calls your wanter and what I'm going to call your viewer. 
Willard famously said, our wanters are broken. That's the problem. Our wanters are broken. What we want, it's broken. We need to want Christ. So put your, your, your eyes and your, your scope and your entire being. Make Christ the center of gravity and your life will begin to change. So some of you guys are just like, man, I just don't know how to get over this thing in my life. Start worshiping Jesus and watch everything begin to change in your life. Well, I don't want to worship him. Then start looking at him and you will. Meet him in the book. Meet him in the text. Meet him in prayer. Meet his spirit. Interact with him and watch him produce fruit in your life. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? God, we thank you so much this morning for just this, this opportunity to open the book and to be reminded that Christian culture looks different. Lord, I pray that we would be people that look different, not because we're just trying to synthesize a Christian life, not because we're just grin and bear it, sort of drudgingly saying no to things that we actually want, but rather, Lord, that we would be a community that is worship-driven, getting to do exactly what we want, which is to worship you, to be with your people, to open your word, to be edified. Jesus, you are the ultimate value in the universe. God, will you fix our worship disorder this week? Will you help us to see that you're what we're, our, our, our souls are screaming for? You're what our bodies and our, and our senses and our desires are just aching for, Jesus. You are the, the source of all joy and, and goodness in the universe. God, forgive us for giving these perverted lies, twisted truths, false kingdom values. Forgive us for giving them this, this attention of ours. Lord, satiate, satisfy the worship of our heart in yourself. Help us to be people that live right lives because we want to, because we've found you to be so lovely, to be so tremendously valuable. Jesus, you're the king. Help us to be a Christiform community, a community that looks like Christ. Thank you, Lord. We're in process. You're going to meet us in that this week. Thank you that you're the vine. We're the branches. Help us to abide this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. I'll be able to have a great day.